I am recording, if you're ready. Uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently this time, though, if, you, if you're okay. willing to roll with me. All right. <laughs> What's that face? <laughs> <laughs> do I look like I'm in any shape to roll? <laughs> Ever? You do. You do. Here we go. <laughs> Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and they don't know it yet, but my co-hosts for this episode are Dan and Kate Malman. Welcome, guys. What? what? <laughs> Sorry to spring that on you, but I needed a co-host, and you're it. Yay! Oh, man. Uh, if I had known that we were going to co-host, I would have uh, come out behind Johnny Carson's curtain. You have one of those in your house? Well, yeah. You don't? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Well, I've already done all the interviews, so this is going to be easy for you guys. All you need to do is help me with these little hosty bits, and it'll be painless. Trust me. All right. <laughs> you don't sound convinced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I talked to three authors with three wildly different accents. I, I I'm, have a cornucopia of accents so far this season. It's very exciting to me. We love accents on this show. Now, people might not know... There's a difference between a Wisconsin and a Minnesota accent, but there there are subtle differences, right? So I've been told. You, you don't even hear it? I hear it a little bit, but not a lot. Kate, I'm thirsty, so I'm going to go to the machine that uh, puts the water up in the air. Oh, the bubbler. <laughs> it's not a drinking fountain. It's a bubbler. Mm, that makes no sense to me. I drink soda. I drink pop. It's not pop in Wisconsin? No. Oh, it was pop in Iowa. It's Iowa. Oh, oh, sorry. I also enjoy a tater tot hot dish. I make tater tot casserole. Oh, wow. This might as well be two different countries. <laughs> I exactly. know, right? Yes. All right. Well, my first guest is Peter Robinson. He is the author of the Inspector Banks novels, and his latest, Not Dark Yet, is his 27th Banks book, That, which is crazy, right? Dang. That's a lot. Well, Peter is from Yorkshire in England, but now he lives in Canada. Uh, do you guys enjoy reading about uh, small English villages where good old English murders take place, seemingly at a regular pace? Ye old murders. Um, <laughs> we're big Doctor Who fans and a lot of Monty Python hijinks, uh, but haven't gotten too much into the Agatha Christie type. Not a, not a traditional British drawing room mystery uh, household there? Not as much, but always open to something new. I talked to Peter and, and found out that uh, these quaint little villages, not always the safest place to be. There's murder and mayhem abound. Well, now I'm interested. That's it. Peter Robinson, thank you for joining me on Writer Types. Uh, not Dark Yet is the 27th in the Inspector Banks series. That is quite impressive. I want to know from you, do you consider these books to be DCI Banks novels, or do you think of them more as ensemble pieces with the whole world that you've created around him in Eastvale? Yeah, it's the second of those, really. I mean, you know, I never knew I'd, I'd, I'd write as many books when I first started doing it. I figured maybe I'd get three or four done. And my plan was to maybe keep doing Banks, but do more standalones. But as it happened, a lot of the stories that I wanted to do as standalones didn't work out until I realized that they would work better as Banks novels. Oh. If, if I put him in, you know, they, they hung together a lot better. You know, sometimes it was to do with just having the wrong point of view character or, you know, something like that. But no, so, so it really is a whole world, you know. It's, it's, uh, and I have done standalones too, but, but not quite as many as I thought I would. 
<laughs> well, that, that's good. If uh, if an idea crops up and, uh, and and if it's not working in one one place, you can always switch over and just bring it to Eastvale or cut it loose and make it a standalone. Well, I mean, if it were as obvious as that, I would be happy. But usually, I've spent about a year on it before I realize that that's <laughs> what I can do. Um, it's better late than never. Exactly. Well, British writers seem intent on letting us know that quaint English villages are anything but that. They, they seem to be rife with murder and deception if we're to believe what we read on the page. Is that a, a reaction to something? Like, do, do these quiet hamlets that you write about not enjoy their reputation as being kind of boring and quaint? <laughs> it goes right back to Sherlock Holmes, you know, when he mentioned to Watson that nothing's quite as dangerous as these little quiet country places. You know, people have grudges and secrets and you know that almost simultaneously they're they're living close together so they know everything about one another but there's also a lot of isolation between say farmhouses and you know and, and tiny communities so it's, it's just it, it's as rife for for crime as the city you know quite often the the reasons would be different um, my place is just big enough to have a, a little drug problem, so that can be a more urban problem that, that I bring into the mix. Um, but, you know, quite, quite often the, the motives in country crime novels are more to do with the past, trying to conceal some information that's compromising, or one of the, you know, lust or jealousy or something like that, rather than the more modern urban problems that, that we see in a lot of city crime novels. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something like lust and jealousy. That's been around forever and is going to stay around forever, right? <laughs> Can yeah, never go there, wrong. There are very few plots and, and those are two of the best providers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was reading a little bit about your time at uh, the University of Leeds, where you received a degree in English literature. Do you think, uh, I know they're proud of you as an alumnus, but do you think that your professors uh, who were teaching you at the time would be proud of what you'd accomplished or are, are, is what you do not literary enough for a degree in English literature? You'd be surprised. I mean, some of the greatest readers of crime fiction are English professors. Oh yeah? Yeah. And, and in fact, it was my, my uh, PhD supervisor in, in Toronto here that uh, got me hooked on writers like Robert Parker and John D. MacDonald, you know, the, the, the sort of American uh, crime writers. So, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, on the whole, I also know that w w one of my profs at Leeds University was a poet, Geoffrey Hill. And I was doing a book signing many years afterwards, and, and a woman came up to me and said, would you sign this for Geoffrey Hill? And I said, oh, I like the poet. And she said, it is a poet. He's my father. Oh, so wow. he was reading my books. So, no, I, yeah, I, academics are great crime fans. Yeah, I wonder uh, if if we can ever seem to get crime and mystery fiction the the respect that it deserves, or is is it a little bit hidden? Is it a bit bit of a guilty pleasure among that set? Do you think? Oh, probably. I mean, and, and I think it always will be. You know, people love to divide things into genres, and you know, one genre has to look down on another. So the literary writers look down on the genre writers. The genre writers look down on the cookbook writers. You know, I mean, it's so it goes. Poets are at the top because they make the least money. <laughs> they look down on everyone. Right. I was also reading with interest. It, it certainly sounds like you also saw some pretty amazing music when you were there at university uh, in, in the early 70s. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was a great time to be there. Um, yeah, we had The Who, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Leonard Cohen. You know, just about everybody came through. And in fact, I was just picked up a thread on on, on the internet the other day about a, a Wings concert that I happened to be at. They were doing a rehearsal tour. And uh, we were just sitting in the coffee bar and somebody came round to, do you want to go see Wings at lunchtime? The tickets were 50 pence, which is about a couple of dollars, you know. Wow. So we said, okay. And it would just happen like that. Wow. Well, so you were born in England, uh, you write about England, but you've been adopted uh, by Canada and North America in, in general. I mean, how does it feel to have two different continents fighting over who gets to claim you as their own? <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, really. I mean, I, I've, I've never thought about it that much because when I first started writing the Banks books, when I, I first came to live in Canada, and a lot of it was done out of nostalgia and homesickness. It seemed to be a way of linking myself with back home when I was a long way away and I had no family over here. Since then, I spend more time in England. I've got a house there, so I sort of split my time. But I've noticed sometimes that, you know, the English editions will claim me as, 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 a, as an English crime writer. The Canadians will claim me as a Canadian crime writer. And the Americans don't mention Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, you yourself, obviously, you have dedicated readers from all over the world. You've been translated into multiple languages. I mean, what do you think writers from all these different cultures can see in, you know, this small village of Eastvale that, that comes across through so many language barriers and cultural barriers? I think, I mean, it's the humanity. It's the people. I mean, my, my main interest in, is in the characters and how they relate to one another. You know, my, my thoughts always been that no matter how different we like to call ourselves and express ourselves, we're, we're underneath, we're all human beings. We are, a lot of us have the same fears, the same dreams, the same hopes, just expressed in slightly different terms according to our culture. So I, I just work on, on, on that conception all the time, that what I'm writing about are human beings in difficult situations quite often. And that applies to any country in the world. I mean, somebody once, a writer called Robert Barnard wrote a book about Agatha Christie, and he said one of the reasons her books appeal, you know, to people living in a little village in, in uh, Norway or wherever is because the types are all recognizable. Every village has, you know, the gossip, uh, has the retired colonel. And, yeah. But I mean, it's the same thing, you know, we're all people and people like to read about people. Yeah. Well, that it gets back to lust and jealousy. That's yeah. <laughs> that, well, that translates. The, I mean, there is the exotic element too, because you know, when we're not from somewhere, it's a nice window onto another world to read a book set there. So I know a lot of people who may be traveling somewhere and they want to find out, you know, what crime novels are set there, so they can read them before they go. Not because they're worried about crime, but because crime novels give you a really good picture of. of the, the place that you're going to. And I suppose for some people, Yorkshire is quite exotic and you know, reading my books, it gives them a little window into that. Yeah. Well, so speaking of one of your standalones, uh, No Cure for Love takes place in Los Angeles where I live. Yes. You know, a, a totally different experience, but I want to know when you, when you write outside of Eastvale, is it a completely different experience or is a story a story and the setting becomes kind of secondary? Because uh, like you say, if, if you're just writing about people, then the location kind of shouldn't matter, right? Well, it does. I mean, you know, pe people 
because of the way LA is set up, people behave in different ways. There are different patterns of behavior there. The the place comes first for me in a lot of ways. And I wanted to write an L.A. novel. I mean, what can I say? I read Chandler and, you know, I grew up on that stuff. We watched the movies. I mean, you know, that's a big thing in the English kid's mind, you know, when he's growing up Hollywood and movies, private eyes. And I, I really spent a lot of time there in, I think, the early 90s. In the end, you know, I thought, I I really want to write a book set here. And I had a lot of friends in California who were very helpful, you know, with with it. Like they read it through and corrected my American, which wasn't very good. I mean, it's in some ways, it's like writing in a different language, although I didn't have to do the accent. Right. Just just get the words right. It was an enjoyable experience. And it was kind of a different sort of book. It was a very L.A. book because you have a, you know, a Hollywood actress in a TV series and a stalker. That stuff was not happening much in the UK in those days. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, did you enjoy the experience and you think you, you might ever uh, revisit LA? I, I, I did enjoy the experience. And um, I wanted to do, you know, a series possibly. I did, and in fact, the, the head of the um, threat management unit, I spent some time with research in the book, uh, said that, you know, he thought it would make a good TV series and, and, and he wanted to be the uh, consultant, you know. So uh, we were all set to go. But but the book bombed. I mean, it, nobody wanted it. Well, you got a little glimpse into uh, my writing career then. So welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, you have to get used to it, you know. <laughs> Develop a thick skin. All right, guys. Well, next up, I spoke with a debut novelist, Robin Geigel. Her debut is called By Way of Sorrow, and this is a thriller about a transgender prostitute who's defended in a murder case by a lawyer who is herself transgender. And there's an evil senator trying to keep some family secrets hidden at all costs. Uh, People do a lot to keep secrets hidden, don't they? I I have no idea what you're talking about, but don't open that closet door. (laughs) See, you've already said where your secrets are. Dang it. already failed. But she said not to open it. Yeah, yeah I guess. And I, I, I might live in California now. I was born in the Midwest. I will politely take all instructions if I am a guest in your house. <laughs> I will not open that. Don't go in that closet. Only use the downstairs bathroom, all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the Midwest is where manners still matter. Robin Geigel, thank you for coming and joining me on Writer Types today. Uh, congratulations on your debut novel. This is always so exciting. Thank you, Eric. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the congrats on the debut novel. It is exciting. Yeah. Well, so By Way of Sorrow introduces us to Aaron McCabe, who takes on a high-profile case when uh, it, it seems like she herself might not necessarily want to be in the spotlight. That's safe to say, right? Yes. But, you know, she sees something in this case and she knows that she is the best person to defend this case. I want to know, did this story for you begin with the case or did it begin with Aaron, the character? It actually began with Sharice, who is the woman that she ultimately defends. And I don't want to in any way compare my novel to To Kill a Mockingbird, but I had just finished rereading it and... I, I was drawn to the fact I had forgotten how much of that was a courtroom drama. Yeah. I observed that Tom Robinson, who is the defendant in that case, really doesn't have a voice. You just see Tom through everybody else. 
And I thought, what a shame, because what an interesting story Tom Robinson must have had. And so I came up with Sharice, and then I said, no, Sharice is a trans woman of color. That's not my story to tell. I need to tell it through the eyes of the lawyer, and that's where Erin came from. And and Erin herself has a little bit of a backstory, because before I wrote By Way of Sorrow, I had written another book. But that book didn't sell. And I have a son who's also an author. His name is Colin Geigel. And we're the beta readers for each other. Uh And he had indicated to me that he thought one of the reasons why it didn't sell was the main character, even though the story was different, the main character was too much like me. (laughs) And so it, it didn't read authentically because I was pouring my heart and soul into this character. So when I did By Way of Sorrow... I wanted to find a character that I could identify with. She's a lawyer. She does criminal defense work, which both of which I do. And she's a trans woman, which I am as well. And so I, I had the, you know, write what you know part, but I wanted that character to be different than me. So she's young. She's 35. She's very attractive. I'm not 35 and attractive. I'm 68. Uh, so that's where Aaron came from. The story was actually Charisse's, but I didn't have, I don't think I felt comfortable telling that story, but I felt through Aaron, I could tell both of their stories. Right. Well, I mean, you raise an interesting point. I mean, because this is the kind of story that, uh, like you say, like I, I certainly wouldn't feel like either Aaron or Charisse's story would, would be mine to tell. I would, be, I would be, I think, reluctant to jump in and try to write about characters like that, but until someone like yourself comes along, that means that their stories remain untold. So is that reason enough to encourage more writers to to write about their own sort of personal corner of the world and, and the people that they know well so that these stories don't remain uh, under wraps? Certainly, that's one thing that we should do. But I would be the last person to say, just because... The, the life journey of one of your characters hasn't been your life journey. You shouldn't write about them. Mm-hmm. I think we can all learn through talking to people, talking to, in my case, talking to trans women of color, talking to, to people who are, are different from me and learning their experiences because you can't have a book where all the characters are like you. You have to have right. <laughs> a book populated by diverse people. Yeah. And so... I, I would never say if you're not trans, you can't write a, a story with a trans character in it. Just like, you know, if you're not a person of color, you can't have a, a person of color in your story. I think it's incumbent upon an author, if you haven't lived the journey that your character has lived, that you educate yourself and you try to make it as authentic as possible. I think that's all an author can do because there's yeah. a lot of trans people who are different from me and they might not see my trans character in themselves. And yet, I am a trans woman, so yeah, it's it, it's a slippery slope in in, in twenty twenty one. I mean, I'm a, a straight white male author, and I lean into characters now, and I, I second guess myself a lot on, as you say, people of color, you know, LGBT characters, things like that. I have to really step back and think, okay, I have to get this right or I'll get called out for it for sure. But at, at the very least, you're saying that if I have questions now, now we know each other, I can call you and say, hey, am I doing this right? Absolutely, Eric. But I think all authors have always done that. Maybe we weren't just as conscious of it. 
that we've right. always tried to get our characters to be authentic and be true to who we envision them. It's just sometimes if we don't know the group that we're writing about, maybe we get it wrong. So as long as we educate ourselves and, and try to get it right, again, we have to have diverse characters in our stories. Yeah. Well, the the senator in this book who's trying to protect himself and his reputation, he, he takes aim at both Aaron and Charisse uh, and uses their personal lives. And the fact that they are transgender, sort of, he wields it like a weapon against them. Is that something that is a not a constant worry. I mean, you know, but is that something that that you have to think about? I will say personally that I don't think about it, but you're absolutely right that trans people in general and and certainly a, a large segment of the trans community have to be very concerned about the targets on their back because it can be weaponized against them. I mean, we see that in all different ways, not only in terms of just who they are and trying to live their lives as best they can. But you see it now with all the bills that are pending in various states to ban transgender athletes for no other reason than they're transgender. So again, we have to realize that that can be weaponized against people when it shouldn't be. You mentioned you are an attorney yourself, and I'm going to presume a fan of legal thrillers for for many, many years. So are there must-have elements in a legal thriller for you? I will confess that I did not think I had to have a must-have list that I checked off as I went through. This actually started out to be a courtroom drama, and as if you've read it, you see it's not a courtroom drama. Right. And a lot of legal thrillers are because that's an essential element of being an attorney. And the, and the courtroom is such a natural setting for drama. Yeah, yeah. In real life, we see so much happening in a courtroom. So, you know, somebody might say, well, if you're going to have a legal thriller, there has to be a courtroom aspect to it. And I originally thought that, but it slipped away. And while there are scenes that take place in the courtroom, there's not a trial in this case. Yeah. I don't think there needs to be anything other than a story that is compelling for the legal thriller genre. It has to be set in the legal community of some sort, in my case, lawyers. But I don't think there needs to be any you know, structure other than it's an exciting story with legal twists and turns and hopefully holds the reader's interest throughout the book. Yeah, well, that's that's all we can do for any any thriller, right? I mean, and, and you really can. I mean, I guess you you can just take legal off the page and just present this as here's a thriller because yeah, you've you've got these two women who are locked in this battle with the senator and end up uh, you know their lives are in jeopardy. Well, hey, that's that's a thriller. And yeah. now you're talking any any thriller, courtroom or not. And it was important to me that I I write a thriller because I want this to appeal to as wide an audience as I can. This is not a book for the transgender community solely. It's it's a book I hope everybody, straight white men, um, right. you know, straight white women, uh, women of color, men of color. I hope everybody enjoys this book. It was designed to appeal to anyone who likes a thriller. And then at the same time, maybe have a little lesson tucked in the pages about what it's like to be a transgender person. Right, right. Well, mission accomplished. I, I, I can endorse <laughs> speaking for every straight white male <laughs> reader out there, <laughs> if I may. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, 
You speak a lot about diversity issues, LGBTQ issues. Uh, you were appointed by the New Jersey Supreme Court to the Committee on Diversity and Inclusion and Community Engagement, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> but now you're a published author. Are you prepared for the hundreds of questions you're about to get on how to become a published author, how to get an agent, how to get my book to a publisher? Are you ready for the onslaught that's about to come your way? I think the honest answer to that is no. (laughs) (laughs) I know what happened for me, and I have a son who's a published author, so I know what happened to him. But in terms of telling other people how to do it or what to do, it's a grind, as you well know, and you, and you just keep at it. You don't give up. And yeah. whatever advice I can give to people, I'll be happy to try to share it. Excellent. I think this is clearly the start of a, of a series featuring Aaron. Is, am, am I right in, in that? Yes, you are. When uh, Kensington Books signed me to publish By Way of Sorrow, it was a two-book deal. So there is a second Aaron McCabe novel. It's the manuscript has been submitted and accepted and it's in the editing process. So there will, there will at least be a book too. That much I can assure people. And is any plans to go back to that first novel and uh, polish it up, change it around and, and bring that back to life? The answer is, is probably no. I like the concept of the novel and I think I might try to take that and rebuild something around it. But Having gone back and reread it, I understand why it never was published. And I'm thankful that it was never published. Yeah, we all have that uh, novel in a drawer. And it's usually the first one, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I I have one of those. I I think I I did the same thing. I was like, you know, 15 books in. And I said, "Ah, let me bring this out and see if it's something salvageable. And I I started reading it 30 pages in. I was like, nah, this is... (laughs) <laughs> too much work, you know. It's 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 not just renovating the the kitchen. It would be a tear down to the studs, you know. <laughs> well, as a start to to a series, I think you're off to a great start. I think Aaron is uh, is a really compelling character that uh, I think certainly could go a lot of ways. Maybe there's uh, some courtroom scenes in her future. Do you think uh, you're going to send her to the courtroom and and get a little bit of that more traditional legal thriller thing in the future? Uh, I can say that in book two, Erin does find her way into the courtroom and there is a full-blown trial. Nice. All right. Well, we look forward to that. And uh, thank you so much for finally improving on To Kill a Mockingbird because it's been too long <laughs> since someone's taken that book down a peg. <laughs> I never want to compare my book to Kill a Mockingbird. Trust me. That's the last thing I ever want to do. So don't do that to me, Erin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, well, let's see uh, who's next on the schedule. Oh, good. I get to talk to our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. Hi, guys. Hi. You get to host and be on the show. Let's talk about some books that you read. I'm into this. Let's do it. All right. I'm here to talk about Midnight Lullaby by uh, James D.F. Hanna. Yes. This was a book that we had talked about a little while back. At that time, I was going through a super dry spell with my reading. This is what I needed to kind of get me out of my my rut. Uh, Mr. Hanna introduces us to ex-state trooper Henry Malone. Malone is on disability um, and has to deal with a, a wonky knee. Um, so he's really just settled into a life of not much. Now, would, would wonky knee have been a better title for this book? Um, that sounds more like a British thriller. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> when someone knocks on uh, Malone's door, um, asking him to look into a missing persons case that the regular cops have pretty much uh, put on a shelf, he gets going again 
finds purpose and, and has motivation to get going. Hannah really has thrown, I would say, everything into uh, Midnight Lullaby. Um, this is clearly his love letter to crime fiction. Um, if you look close enough, there's nods to Spencer, Rockford, and a whole lot of Justified. But nothing feels derivative. Um, they're more just, just touchstones. And you put them together and you get something really fun, fast-moving, and uh, there's uh, a whole lot more in the series coming out. So definitely something for fans to get look, uh, excited for. Uh, well, excellent. Yeah, the first in a, in a long-running series uh, that if people dive in there, they, they have a, a great journey ahead of them. And all those books, they're already written. They're slated to come out. You won't have to wait long. So you can just bang through these uh, one after they, the other. Yeah, the announcement for the second one was just uh, was released, what, last week? Yeah, so. yeah. I think I think it's already. I think I did the covers for six at least, six maybe seven. So there's there's a bunch already already done, and they should come out uh, quick. So jump on board now. Yeah, ready to ready for it. Cool. All right, Kate, what do you got? Okay, so I read Lola on Fire by Rio Ewers. Uh, yes. He was a guest on the one of the previous episodes. He was. And I'm really. I'm, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really really enjoying it. Book starts out with. Guy named Brody, he, down on his luck, desperate for money. He needs to pay for his sister's medication. Kind of out of sorts, doesn't know what to do, so he robs a convenience store. On his way out, he's kind of flustered, bumps into this lady, loses his wallet. So the woman who picks up his wallet contacts him and is like, hey, I'll give you your wallet, but first you have to do this favor for me. And the favor is to go rob his stepmother's house get her mother's diamonds back and she'll give him the wallet and they'll be all square. Well, of course things don't quite go as planned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the woman who, who like set him up is like, Oh yeah, by the way, my dad is this notorious mobster that you may have heard of this one time who killed some record executive who wouldn't sign an artist and left his head on a record player spinning. Nice. Like that's an image. Yes. Yeah. His book was full of them. I, totally. that's, that's, that's one thing I loved about his book. Yeah, it was so good. It's 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 very cinematic. Yes. There's this this character in the background that they keep talking about by, by the name of Lola Bear, which, by the way, is a fantastic name for a female assassin. <laughs> it's a fantastic name. Well, I, I, I'm I'm so glad that you like that. Yeah, that was that was definitely one that uh, I've, I burned through pretty quick, and it was one of yeah that head on the record player is a perfect image where it's like every you hit those things you'd be like oh my god what's he gonna do next right <laughs> and that's right. Like, that's okay, the thing yeah. that keeps me turning pages <laughs> yes yes and now i've got to the point where there it, it's kind of coming to the big shootout i don't know what's gonna happen but it's gonna be i know it's gonna be big and there's gonna be some amazing fights and descriptions yeah. and i'm i'm ready to to jump into that so i gotta go <laughs> <laughs> so all right well kate's done Wait, wait, don't go yet. I, I want to tell you guys about a book that I-, I Okay, yeah, what are yeah. you reading? So like you, Dan, uh, I've, I have had a hit or miss 2021 and yeah. really reaching back about a full year with, you know, keeping on track. I've put down a lot of books that were probably fine, and but it, it's me, not you, you know, kind of thing. But maybe I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. No, the books, Yeah, the I feel like the last- year to the books that I've really landed with me are they're a little slower they're a little less uh, you know Tarantino-esque yeah. and the, this one it's called Raft of Stars by Andrew J. Graff and yeah. it's this story it's it you know two young boys have hard lives you know their home lives are neither one of them is is good 
one of the young boy's father is a real asshole. They finally have their confrontation with him. A gun is pulled out. Shots are fired. They run away from the house thinking that they have killed this man. And they take to the woods and they're going to run away and they're going to they're going to make their escape. So now all these people are after them, the local police, the one of the boys grandfathers, one of the boys mothers, uh, you know, everyone's going after these boys. So it's like this it's almost this Huck Finn, like they're literally on a river, they build a raft and they sail down. It takes place in Wisconsin. But it's not like, you know, a bang bang shoot 'em up action thing, but I think at its heart, it's very much, you know, is a crime novel. It's, you know, you definitely, it's a thriller, I guess I should say, but there's so much heart. The writing is really great. And it, it falls in line with a lot of other books uh, I've read, uh, you know, like something like nothing more dangerous by Alan Eskins uh, or Zone. small moving parts by DB Jackson was another one that, and you know, a lot of these stories that uh, feature young boys. And I'm sure I probably relate to that, even though I, never went through anything like this, but they're, they feel a little slower, maybe a little more mature, but mm-hmm. uh, this one highly recommended raft of stars, uh, re- really, really good stuff and getting a ton of, getting a ton of attention and a ton of praise as it deserves. Great. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, the good news is now is that I don't have to say goodbye to you. You guys hang out for the oh, rest yeah. of the show. We'll just sit around. Yeah. So my final guest, I spoke with Johanna Gustafson. And I'm going to let you guys guess based on her name, where she's from and what accent she has. Minnesota is full of Gustafsons. Yeah. So I'm... Say, Bemidji. Bemidji. <laughs> <laughs> uh, could it be Sweden? Good guess, Kate. Mm, I'm going to say Norway. You're both wrong. Oh. She's oh. French. Trick she... question. <laughs> I... Yeah. Yeah. But she lives in London. She married a Swede, which is where she got her last name. Uh, but in her series of dark thrillers, the Roy and Castell series, they're huge hits in her native France and in the UK. Now she's poised to conquer America with her third book in the series, Blood Song. She was an absolute delight to speak with. Maybe it was the accent. I'm easily charmed by accents. It, you know, it, it goes that way. Mm-hmm. Do I have an accent to you guys? I mean, I, like I said, I was I was born in Iowa, but I've lived in California most of my life. Do I do I sound like a California dude? No, no, no. You, okay. yeah, you, uh, you wear your Midwest badge proudly. Okay, I have I have generic flat Midwest accent. Mm-hmm. Exactly, all American boy. <laughs> yes, yes. You and Tom Broca. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you for being on Writer Types, Joanna. Uh, this is uh, my first time speaking with a French author. Although, <laughs> although you're, you're living in London, so it's it's a bit of a cheat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but one one French always French, right? <laughs> oh, okay. I, I I believe that. I'm going to start with a question that I'm sure you get all the time, but I, I need to know: Do you start off writing in French, or have you shifted now? Do you write in English first? No, never. I mean, French is really my language. You know, I speak French to my kids. Um, I've been living now a decade here, but French is, is my language. It's my my mother tongue. You know, I've learned speaking English with a Swede. My husband is a Swede, so he's Swedish. So, of course, I will never try writing in English. To leave is good enough and not to write. I, I wouldn't be able to, to, to play with words and with sounds the same way. So definitely not. Well, you write a, a series about a true crime writer, Alexis, mm-hmm. and a profiler, Emily. Yeah. 
I want to know, did you start with one or the other or did they come to you as a pair? I started with them separately. I wanted to have um, a duo which would be feminine. I was a bit tired of always finding male and drunk leading male who were dragging themselves out of terrible divorces and uh, with alcohol. And I was like, okay, I, I want, I want two women who would have their problems because we, we all do. I mean, we can not imagine, I think, people solving crimes and being all cheery. I mean, this is not, I mean, for me, it's not what I write. I write kind of hardcore, um, um, I would say dark uh, crime. Right. Um, so, so what happened first is that I had the idea of Emily when I read um, about um, South African profiler. So her name was Mickey Pistorius, and she's the aunt of uh, Oscar Pistorius. The uh, South African, oh. um, yeah, Paralympic uh, sportsman who was accused of killing his um, his fiance, and the, the the sad story behind that is that his aunt is one of the most famous profiler in the world, and in the nineties she arrested I don't know how many sorry uh, killers, and I read a book about her years back, and I thought she was fascinating. She was a bit mystic or mystical how do you say in English you see that's why I don't write in English <laughs> there are words that I still don't know, you know? <laughs> and she um and and I got really truly inspired about her and it started like that and then I had an idea of having a counterbalance to this dark character would be kind of solitary who we drawn to her own world. And I thought, why not having someone who would have a little bit of the same origin uh, as me? So someone who would be coming from a Southern, you know, culture and uh, who would have uh, um, a bit more joy and, and lightness in her, but still doing a job that would be kind of harsh and heavy, which is right. which true, true crime writing is. And then I counterbalance those two personalities. Yeah, for sure. Well, if, as you say, obviously, born in France, you mentioned you're married to a Swede. Now you're living in, and raising children in England. Yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely see a lot of this international mix on the page in what you do. You you don't stick to one location. You're, you jump back and forth to different countries. And uh, how do you think that international mix that you find yourself in makes it onto the page in what you write. What I realized is that when I when I had to write my first book, I had my my editor who became my agent and she she told me, she said, think of who you are, because who you are right now is is kind of unique. We we have very few of those writers in Europe who who are like a mix of so many cultures. And for me, I also have this very Southern influence because my family is from Marseille and I have half of my family who is Spanish, uh, Catalan and Valencian, so which I, I, I speak Spanish fluently. I have half of my family there. So this melting pot of culture that Europe is, without really realizing, I think, I put all of this into, um, into the book. And because I'm talking about Europe, history i mean dirty pages of our history <laughs> shameful pages of our history so i think yes i think that's how it came about as well well as a journalist i, I mean i'm going to assume you have a, a very different approach to writing than say i do i mean it seems very probably more methodical more research based mm. would you say that that's sort of your your process 
Oh, you're completely right. I mean, it's exactly, I'm obsessed with research. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I'm a total history geek. So that's why I'm, I'm writing, you know, partly um, historical um, thrillers. Um, because they're all based in, a, in a, as I was saying, in a shameful pages of our history. Um, but um, I, I do research and, and, I, and I love this and I bathe in it and I spend months <laughs> reading books in all sorts of languages and, uh, and doing research on God for, for Block 46, the first one. I spend time reading the, the, the minutes of the, 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 the Nuremberg trial. So I really go oh, wow. journalist deep <laughs> into <laughs> everything really digging into things, dissecting, like my serial killers, but I just dissect facts. I don't, I don't go to body. <laughs> Not yet. After months of homeschooling, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one, one thing, at least one thing we have in common is that we both like to write in silence. We, I, I, I'm the same as you. I can't go to a coffee shop. I, I can't be, I can't play music. You need the isolation, right? I'm the same and I did, did imagine I mean I had to draw uh, I don't know amounts of uh, I mean I don't know I think I should have been a monk in another life because I'm surrounded by <laughs> noise here <clears throat> imagine that with three boys I mean they're seven and, and oh, the no. twins are three so I mean one seven and two are three it's just and boys it's just dinosaurs meet uh, god uh, uh, firemen so oh I love silence when I write to be with my thoughts and that's it your latest book, Blood Song, it moves from London to Sweden uh, and also back in time to 1938. It, it seemed to me that maybe this was a bit of uh, like a map of your research, following the threads wherever they lead. Do you find yourself changing your plot as you come upon new things in your research and, and, and you really are just sort of following it where it leads? Or are you, do you know the destination that you want to go to as you're doing all this research? No, I really know the destination. I mean, at the start, when I started the research with this one, I had no idea. Um, my point was that I wanted to talk about something that was dear to my heart, which was a part of my family history, the Franco years, because my two granddad are linked to that. One was born in Barcelona, so he flew the, um, the, the, the civil war. And the other one, who was 12 years younger, he was French, but his, his father was Spanish and he, he went to Spain to fight. So for me, those years were years I really wanted to dig in, to dig into. And what happened was that I really thought I would talk about the scandal of the, the drama of the, the, the stolen children, which, right. which happened in, in Spain during, oh God, from the, from the start of the, the civil war until the, the 90s. And wow. then as I was looking I stumbled upon something completely different, which were those orphanages that I'm talking about. That they were called the orphanages of the fear because they were, they were dreadful places. And then I created my story. Uh, all three of these books have been an international success. Uh, I've, I've seen you, you've been dubbed the, the queen of French noir, which is oh, a, a, quite a title. <laughs> How important is it for, to do well in America? Is, is America a, a big uh, market you, you really want to crack? Oh, it's a, it's a dream. It's an absolute dream. You know, um, 
I um, we had planned with my publisher Karen on uh, oh god which now I'm getting lost with the years but it was last year exactly <laughs> I think June 2020 when everything was closed we had the idea of doing a sort of um, uh, how do you say a sort of uh, meeting an evening at the, the 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 mystery bookshop you know in New York and uh, uh, that was for me it was like I was going to Hollywood he <laughs> 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 was like oh my god that bookshop I remember and and the bookshop had my book and I couldn't believe it I was like wow me in my stories over there oh, it's a market indeed I would love to crack I would love to, to seduce my readers to take them by the hand and and uh, make them like my dark crimes because it's true they're dark <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it dark, so I, I was uh, happy to, to find this this new series for me. So uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, that I've discovered your work, and I certainly hope that uh, American readers will enjoy it when they get to meet Alexis and Emily and, and follow them down this very dark path. Thank you, thank you. That's so kind. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I know uh, I sprung it on you last second, but uh, that wasn't so hard, was it? No way. I think um, if this is what guest hosting is all about, the people from uh, Leno's show should have called me years ago. <laughs> You're a natural. I'm into this. Yes. <laughs> well, see, I, I mean, podcasting is easy, right? Well, you're the one doing all the tech work, so this is a breeze. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was starting to wonder why I'm always complaining about it, but you just reminded me. That, that's why. <laughs> Uh, all right, guys. Well, uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for, again for the book recommendations. Uh, always lovely to talk to you. You can always find Writer Types on Twitter, at Writer Types. Aren't we clever with that? Took, took a while to come up with that one. Well, the focus group liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and back episodes of the show are always available at writertypespodcast.com. Dan, Kate, thank you again for joining me. It's always great to talk to you, and uh, let's do this again. In our very most uh, polite Minnesotan, we say... Thanks for having us, and can we have our Tupperware back when you're done with it? <laughs> yeah, because I ate all of the hot dish and the casserole. Uh, I need that pan back. But you have to leave <laughs> that one square left in the pan so that someone else might have it. Nope. And, then, oh. and then that square will get cut into half and cut into half and cut into half, and eventually there's like a tater tot. Now, what what's the desirable part? Is it the crusty outer edge or the gooey center? Ooh, I'm an outer edge guy. Yeah, outer edge. Yeah. Okay. No Minnesotan will take the last piece. Nope. All right. Well, let the Californian guy swoop in. <laughs> you going to finish that? This doesn't have gluten, does it? <laughs> no, but it's covered in nuts. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>